American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time to When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American, American Timelines. Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm former NFL safety Vincey Glenn. Okay. Remember Vincey Glenn? Why do you ask me I remember him? Vincey Glenn. That's a cool name, isn't it? Vincey? No, it's weird. We should have named, in hindsight, we should have named our kids Vincey. Both of them? One of them. Oh, yeah, just both of them. Like, yeah. Vincey, and that's just one. That's Let's a bad, time name bad idea. Vincey Glenn, idea. y'all. My name's actually Joe. I'm not Vincey Glenn. Blah, 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 stupid. All right, and this is the <laughs> podcast that brings you all the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things from years gone by, and we do it year by yeah. year. We bring you weird stories, scandals, RIP news, like people that died in a weird way, or weird uh, can-you-believe-it stories, plus UFOs and murders and true crime, because yeah. this is a true crime podcast, kind of, but it's also a silly, funny pubic hair podcast. Wait a minute. Well, we end up talk, we talk a lot about pubes. If we don't need to point that out. This is a pube podcast. We, no, it's sometimes. not really. It turns into that. It's not. Sometimes it's a it's, it's not, a marriage counseling podcast. This teaches you how to have a successful marriage. You think? Yeah. If if, if couples listen to this together, mm-hmm. they love each other more. And I don't so, think that's scientifically proven fact. Uh, it's probably pretty accurate. Okay. Almost so, everything I say is almost exactly perfect, no matter what. What year are we talking Except about? Before we get into that, <clears throat> talking about me saying things perfectly, I do. Um, I do always admit when I'm wrong. Uh, no, never that's once. not true. Okay. So, <laughs> so not true. Occasionally I'll admit when I'm wrong. And um, I, I I, can't figure out what happened, if I hadn't slept or what, but I uh, I got some a couple things wrong. And one thing I know, I can't figure out if I spelled it wrong or what, but I, I even confirmed to you, and you were like, are you sure? And I was like, no, I'm sure. This is the pronunciation because I Googled it, and you know how you can Google a word, and yeah. you can Google any word and write pronunciation, and, and you'll find a, a hundred YouTube oh, okay. videos of people pronouncing it. Okay. So I did that with the country of Maldives. The Maldives, yeah. And I insisted it was Maldives because I know, I know that I found a video somewhere where they said Maldives, and I was like, oh my God, I always said that wrong. I always thought it was Maldives. And I was like, oh, it's Maldives, so I couldn't wait to drop that knowledge on you. And you're like, no, I think you got it wrong. I was like, no, I heard a pronunciation. I'm sure of it. And then uh, something made me look it up again because I was like, yeah, it doesn't sound right when I listened back. Yeah. And then I found 7,000 pronunciations saying Maldives. I found a YouTube video where a couple mm-hmm. uh, on some HG show, some show where they go on vacations and mm-hmm. they they were in the Maldives. And it was an unbelievable vacation yeah. spot. We need to go there. It was yeah. beautiful. And it was Maldives and everything I saw since Maldives. And I even tried yeah. to find it the one that you wrong told way. You the so wrong I spelled way? it. I tried to spell it Maldives, like with a yeah. space. Because I thought maybe maybe that's the thing the kids do is dive, go diving in malls. Mm-hmm. And maybe Maldives is a 
uh, something else, and I can't. (laughs) And I I didn't. I couldn't find it again. So maybe it was a dream you had. Maybe it was a dream I had. Maybe I was on marijuana. A lot of alcohol. Uh, But that could be part of it. But all the alcohol. I definitely. um, You definitely said it wrong. Maldives. Jeez, we don't need that at all. (laughs) Maldives. Jesus Christ. That's a pronunciation video that you can do. All right. Maldives. It's just a guy saying Maldives. Maldives. But I swear to God, somewhere I heard Maldives. So maybe millennials write in at History for Jerks. No, on nobody's Twitter writing in. And let me know, is Maldives a thing? Is that like a millennial thing, maybe? We don't need to belabor, belabor this point anymore, I don't think. But there's one other thing, and I'll ask my phone here that I've plugged into our audio console here. Um, that There's another thing I got a name wrong, and you also had no idea what it was. Oh, okay. and, it's a, and it's a very famous director, that uh, a friend of mine named Tim Anderson, yeah. who will never listen because he's he's old and he can't figure out how to do a podcast. He uh, he was like, "That's a famous director. You can't just." And you actually said, "Oh, who cares? Nobody cares." Oh yes. And he said, "You can't just say nobody cares. That's a famous award winning director. You have to get it right." And I've already forgotten his name, so I have to look up who directed uh, the Deer Hunter. Who directed Deer Hunter? The Deer Hunter was directed by Michael Cimino. Michael Cimino, and we Cimino. both said Cimino, oh. and you were like, "Who cares?" But it's Cimino. The only reason, I, the only way I can ever remember who that is and how to say it, I have to ask Google. So Michael Cimino, it's super famous, I guess, and he directed the Deer Hunter. And there's people that are movie buffs that are like, "You stupid idiots, idiots and go to hell." Okay. Um, and one other thing, I heard back from my friend Brian McCartney, who also thought all truckers had monkeys because <laughs> there was a TV show with truckers and monkeys. So those are the three things I had to correct, and I. I, I wake up at night and I'm like, why did I say that wrong? And I don't, you know, I, I'm not trying to put out ill will in the world. I'm just trying to do good things. I'm, I'm like Michael Cohen. I'm trying oh to my God. make up for my bad things. And so, yeah. okay, is that what he's doing? Yeah, because he did, just what I did is just as bad as him. All right. So okay, anyway, so anyway, we left off. We had to stop prematurely last episode in the middle of your uh, poltergeist. Uh, what was it? N- the Enfield Poltergeist. Enfield Poltergeist. And so we're going to continue. We're going to start right off with your Enfield Poltergeist. We're going to finish it. And then we'll finish up Tell us where we left off. All right. The, Hodge, the Hodgson family yeah. experienced strange knocking, toys flying through the air, and moving furniture during a poltergeist haunting in Enfield, England. Ah, right. Police and neighbors also witnessed the phenomena. Yeah, that's right. And some somebody else is about to come in the picture here, right? Yes. So... Okay. On September 7th, senior reporter... Oh, the, you mean the same day that, <laughs> that, that Ethiopia drops diplomatic relations with Somalia? Yes. <laughs> that same day? That same day. Um, senior reporter George Fallows and photographer David Thorpe visited the house. Oh, wow. They, it's crazy that they visited the same day that President Jimmy Carter and General Herrera signed the Panama Canal Treaties. Weird. So the Daily Mirror's fallow contacts the Society for Psychical Research, or Psychical? the SPR, and spoke to Secretary Eleanor Keith. It's Society for what research? Like psychical. Psychical? P-S-Y-Psychical. Like psychic. Yeah. Okay, that's a word. Is it yep. Psychical. O- O'Keefe got in touch with Maurice Gross, who had recently oh, joined Maurice the organization oh. and declared his willingness to act as an investigator if any interesting cases should arise. Oh, Maurice Gross is going to be on this case for show. 
Oh, he was? Yes. Mike he Morris? was responsible, among many innovations, for the rotating advertising billboard, which is, must oh, be something. Oh, everybody to loves those. You had that back then. Yeah. His interest in paranormal phenomena had been awakened by a series of meaningful coincidences that followed the death of his daughter, Janet, in August 1976, of head injuries sustained during a motorcycle accident. Hmm, that's sad, but there, there are no meaningful coincidences. There, They're just coincidences. They were, well, he felt like there were. Things like that happened that um, after she died. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so after life. After okay, death. I see. Things. So like somebody communicating after death. Yes, yeah. that's right. So Gross visited the house on September 5th. He advised Mrs. Hodgson to remain calm and recommended she take notes of any incidents. Remain calm, love. Take a note. Jot a, jot a jolly note down. Fetch, on, a, fetch me a pen. On September 8th, Gross and three Daily Mirror reporters witnessed a loud crash. Convinced that Hodgson's claims were genuine, Gross decided to take on the case. During subsequent visits, he and others observed marbles that Wait, flew Wait, that large crash first was on the same day that Morley Safer did that scathing story on the NRA on 60 Minutes that oh, we talked about. that's right. Okay. Marbles that flew through the air and landed on the floor without rolling. Wait, that can't happen. It would fly through the air and land at a stop. That can't happen. It, it did. That's impossible, Knight. Doors and drawers that opened of their own accord door chimes that swung, objects like teaspoon, cardboard box, fish tank lids that jumped. The movements were witnessed by Gross, the Hodgsons, Peggy Nottingham's father, and four reporters and photographers from the Daily Mirror. You know who else witnessed it? Who? The fish. Yes, that's if true. If there was a fish tank, the fish witnessed it. That's true. At this relatively early stage, Maybe as many as 10 people it. not related to the family had witnessed the phenomenon firsthand. And they all don't have any motive on this. They, right. There's not like any kind of, hey, let's all no, get together. no. Make up this story. We'll all become famous. They'll give us money. Nope. And this Maurice Gross, he is staying there like around the clock almost. He's now. living there. He's moved yeah. in with them. Yeah, probably pretty much. On one of the daughters. Author and investigator Guy Playfair responded to an appeal to the SPR right. for assistance by Gross. Hold on, hold on. What? That last sentence. Guy was... Playfair. Oh, Guy Playfair was his name? Yes, he's an author and he's an investigator. Okay. He Sorry. responded to an appeal to the SBR for assistance by Gross and okay. arrived on September 12th. Now, SBR is not to be confused That's with SBD. That's the Psychical Research Center. Yeah, the SBD is silent but deadly. That's okay. describing a fart. So, I'm glad you <laughs> chime in with that. Yeah, well, that's just to clarify, because there might be some listeners that were wondering. So, Guy Playfair joins them and arrives on September 12th. Guy Playfair, y'all. Along with Rosalind Morris from BBC Radio 4. Oh, Rosalind World Morris is jumping in on this story, huh? He and, wor he and Gross worked together for more than a year, making okay. a total of 180 visits and 25 all-night vigils at the house. Wow, and just nonstop, non seeing all this stuff. stuff. It's not like it's not like there's days where nothing happens. It's just nonstop, nonstop things are bananas, nonstop bananas. And they can't stop. So it. here's some in, some an incomplete list of some incidents. Oh, can't you get? They me are a among the most. One? Wait, get me a complete one. There's first. over 400 things incidents. So you're not going to read all 400? No, I'm not going to. Well, this is not a very good. Not a very thorough. This is not podcast. a very thorough podcast. This is an incomplete podcast. The incidents at Enfield are. Among the most closely recorded in any poltergeist-type case. Okay. Gross, Playfair, Mrs. Hodgson, and other witnesses kept records of varying levels of detail. Tape recordings, mainly by Playfair and Gross, eventually totaled over 180 hours. So Videotape? No, audio. Audio tape? Um, mar marbles and pieces of Lego seen traveling through the air at great speed, seemingly emanating from walls or windows. 
So it's like they came from the wall or the window. Uh, how does that even happen? A teapot shook vigorously on a cabinet in the absence of any external vibration. Huh. Metal spoons bent and the lid of a metal teapot was deformed. The shade of a bedside lamp tilted and then straightened. A toilet door opened and closed when nobody was nearby. Huh. Cardboard boxes and cushions were thrown by an unknown force. A slipper was thrown across the room by an unknown source. I don't know huh. why that, make, that makes me laugh. a slipper. Somebody's pissed and throw a slipper. A framed certificate was pulled off the wall. A bedroom carpet was pulled up at the edge to form an identical shape each time, an effect which Gross was unable to replicate. Like, they would try to replicate, the s yeah. if it was a sound, they would try to replicate the sound, yeah. they would try to figure out what was going on. So this, if, uh, yeah, let's just, for a second, pretend this could have happened. Yeah. The, the poltergeist or the thing doesn't want to hurt anybody it's like they they because they're not they, they compare them to like they could have thrown a knife or something they compare them to somebody. like a bad child yeah like, like they act like children yeah yeah um tubular door chime tubular door chimes swung from side to side many times footsteps were heard when nobody else was present 12 year old margaret was held fast by an unknown force Knocks, bangs, and crush and crashes heard, not caused by plumbing, vibration, Wait, or other external sources. Margaret was held by a... Yeah, held down. she couldn't move? Yeah. Oh, man. Coins disappeared from one room and reappeared at another. Small fires started and extinguished themselves without causing damage. Huh. Water appeared in circumstances not understood. Normally reliable electrical equipment failed to work. Apparitions Water. were seen. There was an old woman with gray hair in the window, and then another time s they saw an old man with big white teeth. Huh. Then Good for him. His teeth are white. Yeah. The iron, there was this real heavy iron frame of a built-in fireplace, and it was wrenched from the wall, and it was really heavy. Huh. Like, a lot, some people say, oh, it was the girls that were playing these tricks. Yeah. Because the, the phenomena centered around Janet, the 11-year-old, but... Something there's like a phenomenon. There's no way that in the, uh, one of the children could have gotten that ripped out of the wall like it is. Hmm. Excrement appeared in inappropriate places. Oh, we'll get to that go. more a little bit. Poop in weird places, y'all. <laughs> Written messages and the abusive remarks and swear words and gruff masculine voices apparently produced by Janet. And we'll get into that more in a oh, minute. Oh, so well. taking over Janet's body like the Poltergeist yeah. movie. And then you also have indentations of like... It would look like a child's head was laying on a pillow really? when there wasn't anybody there. Weird. Um, some effects occurred simultaneously. Many were repeated at different times and places, both day and night. Some were seen by members of the public, who in many cases had no interaction with the Hodgson family. They included John Rainbow, a local tradesman. John Rainbow. <laughs> Richard. Hello, I'm John Rainbow. How are you? Richard Gross, a solicitor, and Hazel She's Short, gross. a road-crossing council employee who is known as the Lollipop Lady. Oh, the Lollipop Lady was there? So she told Playfair that she had been walking towards number 284 to pick up her lollipop sign, which she normally concealed under the hedge at the front of the house. Yeah, that would make sense. That's a good place to put it. Is it anywhere else? That's what I think. I was standing there looking at the house when all of a sudden a couple of books came flying across and hit the window. It was so sudden, I heard the noise because it was so quiet. There was no traffic and it made me jump. Then after a little while, I saw Janet. I don't know if there's a bed underneath that window, but she was going up and down bodily as though someone was jumping and tossing her up and down bodily in a horizontal position, like if, as if someone had got hold of her legs and back and was throwing her up and down. That's very good. That's a very good accent. I definitely saw her coming up about window height, but I thought if she was bouncing, she'd bounce from her feet. 
She wouldn't be able to get enough power to bounce off her back to come up that high. My friend could see her as well. We both could see her. So that's... Could you sing some Mary Poppins songs real quick? I'm not going to do that. that. I'm not gonna hello. Do that. Hello, Peter. Yours is pretty bad. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> hello, hello, hello. So Crikey. then here's some testi- testimony from the, um, the police officer what the police officer saw. Okay, here we go. So this is on Thursday, September the 1st, 1977. Okay. At approximately 1 a.m. I was on duty in my capacity as a Could police woman. Could you do a lower voice? I was on duty. How about this one? I was on duty with in my capacity as a policewoman when I received oh, a radio woman? message to 284 Wood. Oh, it's a policewoman. Street, Enfield. I went to this address where I found a number of people standing in the living room. I was told by the occupier of this house that strange things had been happening during the last few nights and they believed the house was haunted. Myself and another PC entered the living room of the house, and the occupier switched off the lights. Only as to me, almost immediately, I heard the sound of knocking on the walls that back into the next-door neighbor's house. There were four distinct taps on the wall, and in silence. About two minutes later, I heard more tapping, but this time it was coming from a different wall, again with a distinctive peal of four taps. The PC and the neighbors checked the walls, attic, and pipes, but could find nothing to explain the knocking. So they end up... Going into the kitchen to check the refrigerator. You should speak um, like that a lot more. You really do that well. Like I, I would believe that you're from England. You're full of shit. No, I'm serious. That was well, very good. Well, thanks, babe. I don't know. If no, I would like. I mean, it's that's the only one I can do, really. Well, could you do it like for all the time? No, I'm not gonna do that. Jeez. So, th- so then, um, she sees the chair starts wobbling slightly from side to side. Okay. She's alone in the room. Okay. And then she sees it slide across the floor toward the kitchen wall, and it moved about three or four feet, and then just came to a rest. Huh. Um, at no time it did it appear to leave the floor. I checked the chair, but could find nothing to explain how it had moved. The lights were switched back on. Nothing else happened that night, although we have later report of disturbances at that address. So then... Um, so what do you do to stop something like this? Say this was happening, it was nonstop. You just burn the house down? Well, there's there's all these people. They're trying. They want to get to the bottom of it. They want to discover well, of something. They do. I'm just saying, like, what would be the like? Say this really happened. What do you end up doing? You just abandon the place or burn it down or what? One night, Janet said an apparition of an old man sat on her bed and put his hand over her mouth and nose, suffocating her. Oh, jeez. And then later, she saw another old Did man she die? who looked no. Later, she said she saw another old man who looked like Vic Nottingham's father, who she felt protecting her from the evil old man. Wow. That was something that she came up with. They um, began to, the rat, like, whenever the, rat, the spirit would knock, they started to rap back. Yeah. And one knock for no, two for yes. Yeah. They discovered the entity was a male spirit who lived in the house more than 50 years ago huh. and who died in the house. Then, the mes- then they had written messages they started getting. Yeah. And one would say, one said, I will stay in this house. Do not share this with anyone else or I will retaliate. And then the girls started to go into trances and could answer questions. Oh. So, um, on in December of 1977, yeah. three months after the start of the disturbances, an anomalous voice began to emanate from Janet. It started as a series of whistles and dog-like barks and developed into a human voice, that of an elderly male, harsh and guttural and quite unlike Janet's. The voice identified itself as Joe Wilkins, and claimed that he had lived in the house. The previous occupant was, in fact, a Mr. Wilkins who had died in the house, a fact seemingly unknown to Janet. It habitually what? swore and claimed to be still living and to sleep in Janet's bed. Interrogated what? by Richard Gross, Maurice Gross's son, the voice gave further details. And then I want to play this. You have a sound? I have the, the recording. 
What? The audio recording of yeah. this guy's voice? Yeah. Talking through this girl? That's coming out, out of, of little the girl. little girl. Hold on, it gets. So that is that's coming out of a little girl's voice. Yep, and it that's said definitely a grown man. He said I went blind and I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died on a chair in the corner downstairs. Yeah. And to eliminate the possibility that Janet was herself faking the voice, Gross taped up Janet's mouth. The voice continued to be heard, somewhat subdued, and it was the ca it was as was the case on fu future occasions when Janet's mouth was also filled with water. Is is that coming out of her mouth? It's still the voice. You could still hear the voice, even though she had her mouth filled with water. How is that possible? Early in January 1978, Margaret started to speak in a similar harsh voice, but without the same intensity or duration as Janet's. So, oops, hold on. That's, that's insane. The many hours of recordings of the voice were made. A contact microphone placed on the back of Janet's head picked up what appeared to be a different and louder sound than her normal voice. A speech therapist approached by the investigators was unable to say where the sound was coming from or how it was being sustained. It had some resemblance to a false vocal cord tone. 
John Hasted, a, a physicist at London's Burbeck College, carried out an experiment together with Adrian Forshin, a phonetics expert at, in London. Tests with a laryngeograph indicated an effect known as plica ventricularis, where muscle That's tension in the throat can produce sounds independent of the vocal cords. However, there are no side effects by the, this condition. Around six weeks of hoarseness and a sore throat, neither of which were exhibited by Janet. Um, okay. Ray Allen, a ventriloquist, felt that the voice was being produced via the diaphragm, but this was disputed by Gross and Playfair. Gross was so convinced of the paranormal origin of the effect that he offered a f 500 pounds to a nominated charity if any child could replicate the voice under the terms he specified, and nobody took up his offer. I love they brought in a ventriloquist. Yeah. Uh, let's, bring in a, let's bring in a ventriloquist, see let's what he see, thinks. Let's see what he thinks. And then immediately they were like, no, this guy doesn't know what the fuck look he's at, talking about. All he does is look at Stella laying on top of Floyd. I know. I know. <laughs> I, know. I was looking at that. i got to take a picture of that. Better hurry up. I'm not going to last too much longer. She was laying up here, and she just kind of slid down. She doesn't. He does. I would think he'd get pissed pretty soon. He probably will. Okay, so um, in January fifteenth, nineteen seventy-eight, was Peggy's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Peggy! Margaret said she just used the bathroom and was leaving when she felt a tap on her shoulder. Why? Okay, wait a minute. Hold on. Why are they staying in this house? Why wouldn't they just leave? Uh, they're in, it's government owned. They're they're in hard times. Oh, they can't afford anything they can't else. Can't afford anything else. Deal with it. So she feels like something tapped tapped her on the shoulder. Government owned house. When she turned around, someone or something had taken a turd and written the word "shit" on the wall. Yeah, that's few, what it is. A few shit. days later, Mrs. Hodgson was hit in the small of the back with a turd wrapped in toilet paper while sitting in the kitchen. Where's the turds coming from? You think, you think <laughs> there's somebody know. like are they cosmic turds or are they some of the people there's turds? Yeah, I don't know, but she probably was very upset about it. Well, it's a it's a new. Then the apparitions yeah. returned. Both Margaret and Janet saw an old man with long fingernails walk through their room, and Pe Peggy saw a child dressed in a nightgown floating out of the bathroom. Shit. Did something get unplugged? Oh, my phone just got trapped. I wonder. I wonder, like. Um, and How come you can see them sometimes and other times you can't? And then the other time she saw a partial apparition of a man from the waist down walking up the stairs. Wouldn't that wow, be creepy? creepy? You see legs walking upstairs. Or balls in a wiener. So various methods of investigation were undertaken by a number of people between August 1977 and October 1978. In May 1978, the SPR commissioned a committee to investigate the investigation. They carefully interviewed many of the witnesses, considered much of the testimony to be clear and convincing. They also sought expertise from Charles Moses of the Southern California Society of Psychical Research. Oh, not another ventriloquist? No, this guy's no. an experienced investigator. The committee concluded that there was good evidence for paranormal phenomena described by credible informants, though judgments, judgment was reserved on the incidents that could not have been clearly observed or where witnesses were found to be not entirely convincing. They were wary of attributing a paranormal origin to Janet's other voice. Barrington felt personally satisfied that paranormal events took place at Enfield and considered the tearing away of the fireplace an item of poltergeistery of the first order. Poltergeistery of the first order, motherfucker? 
Um, physicist John Hasted found that Janet's body increased in weight when she was strapped to a couch devised to measure such anomal anomalies. He reported two sudden five-second weight increase signals of about one kilogram and a minute gradual weight increase, which eventually, I'm, I'm sorry, in a minute gradual weight increase, which eventually returns to normal, an anomaly he was unable to explain. He was further intrigued by a light bulb that exploded in an unusual way, mm. finding that one of the glass supports on which the filament was mounted had snapped, an event he considered very rare. Mm. Physicist David Robertson carried out experiments at Enfield. He attempted to video Janet secretly, but found it impossible to conceal the equipment from her. He reported the levitation of Janet, the teleportation of a large cushion to the house roof. So he didn't get any video because she saw it. She saw it, yeah. So she, they were like, the apparitions didn't want anybody to have it recorded. Recorded, yeah. Um, but they were fine with the audio recording that we had. yeah. So he recorded a large, uh, the teleportation of a large cushion to the house roof, the overturning of a sideboard, his hand, his head being struck by a flying plate, his hair pulled when he slept on the floor of the front room. A local psychiatrist examined the girls and maintained that if they were left alone, then the disturbances would stop. But this did not happen. Janet was given a detailed physical and psychological assessment. Uh, no abnormality was discovered, such as damage to the brain or evidence of epilepsy. Hypnosis similarly failed to uncover any evidence of psychological frailty. Playfair undertook some research that found similarities with some manifestations of Tourette syndrome, including explosive utterances, barking, and swearing. 21. Yeah. <laughs> when medical doctors were called out, they usually prescribed calming drugs to help Janet sleep. National press reporters, photographers, and television crews used different approaches to try to uncover the reason for the phenomenon. Some introduced professional magicians to try to discover fraudulent activity. Oh, you get the ventriloquists and the magicians yes. working together, and you're going to solve everything. Others brought spirit mediums to make contact with a haunting entity. Let's get a bunch of bullshit artists in here and see what they do. They contacted Dutch medium Dono Gameleg Mele, who had previously brought two Dutch poltergeist cases to an end. Dono who? You're going to make me say that again. He came to the house, and he got to know the family, and he traveled to the astral plane to see what he could find. Oh, I wonder what happened there. Was Mork there? He said that he was positive that a 24-year-old woman was involved in the case. 24 mm. happened to be the exact age Maurice Gross's daughter was when she died. Whether oh, no. Maurice's, daughter's, what, Maurice's daughter was behind the haunting, we will never know. We will never know what was behind the strange phenomena. Soon after this identification, th the happenings tapered out and died altogether in April 1979. They just stopped? Yep. Peggy, after they found out. For no out, reason? Ap soon after the guy came. The, oh, so he stopped. The him. Dutch medium came. Hmm. After he said that there was some 24-year-old woman was behind it. And he, did it he they try all to stopped. Did he try to stop it? No. The he, medium? No, he just told them about that 24-year-old woman and they just pe petered out kind of that's weird peggy hodgson died in 2003 her older son john died in 1981 age 14 janet left home at 16 married young and suffered the loss of her son when he was 18 maurice mm. gross died in 2006 maurice gross got really close to the family oh, really? and particularly like the daughters like he mm -hmm. i think because he lost his daughter. his daughter yeah. yeah and they didn't have the dad so mm. that was Peggy Hodgson avoided public publicity after the disturbances subsided in 1979, but never changed her position about the anomalous nature of what she'd experienced. Mm. 
Billy, a young child at the time, remained largely indifferent to the events. Both Janet and Margaret have made brief appearances on television documentaries, insisting on the genuineness of the phenomena. Hmm. Asked in a 2011 newspaper article whether she believes the house was still haunted, Janet said, Years later, when Mum was alive, there was always a presence there, something watching over you. Janet, now age 45, mentioned having been bullied at school as a result of the incidents, mm. being nicknamed Ghost Girl. She yeah. also mentioned having played with an Ouija board before the trouble flared up. She said she'd been unaware that she went into trances until shown photographs. Wow. Um, she said, I knew when the voices were happening, of course. Hold on. Something in my Get eye. Get your finger out of your butthole. Something in my eye. That's your butthole. I knew when the voices were happening, of course. It felt like something was behind me all the time. They did all sorts of tests, filling my mouth with water and so on, but the voices still came out. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you were going to land. I remember a curtain being wound around my neck. I was screaming. I thought I was going to die. After Peggy Hodgson died, the house was briefly occupied by the mother of four, Claire Bennett, who stated, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. Her sons would wake in the night hearing people talking downstairs. Mm. Bennett then found out about the house's history. Suddenly it all made sense, she said. The family moved out just after two months. The house is currently occupied by another family who do not wish to be identified. The mother says, I've got children. They don't know about it. I don't want to scare them. Hmm. And that's the story of the Enfield Poltergeist. Hopefully they don't listen to our podcast this yeah. episode because then they will find out and they'll be scared. Yeah. Fuckers. Hopefully they don't. Of all the things they could stumble upon in life. Yeah. Hopefully this isn't one of them. Well, you never know. You never do. You know, you could just be searching a podcast and start listening to them and be like, oh my gosh, this Joe and Amy are great. And what a fun podcast. Hey, that's my this address. Is. This is great. Oh, they're talking about me. Oh, no. My that could happen. Address. Oh, shit. We're real popular in England, I think. I, know, I think so. In Germany. And April 1st, 1979. Mm hmm. The Nickelodeon TV cable network began. Oh, that early. Yeah, can you believe it started in the 70s? Yeah, I didn't know that. I did not know that. I, I did, did not, not know that. I did not know that. Nickelodeon, often shortened to Nick, is an American pay television network which was launched on December 1st, 1977, as the first cable channel for children. 77? Hold on. It is owned... By Viacom through its Viacom Media Networks division's Nickelodeon Group unit, Who cares and about is based in New York City. It's primarily aimed at children and adolescents. Everybody knows what Nickelodeon the is. The channel was originally first tested as Pinwheel in 1977. It oh. was just called Pinwheel. Okay. And it w at the time, it was only available on Cube. It starts with a Q. All which right. was the first two-way major market interactive table cable television system owned by Warner Cable. Okay. And then Pinwheel relaunched. As Nickelodeon on April 1st, 1979. All and right. And expanded to other cable providers nationwide. It was initially commercial free and remained without advertising until 1984. All righty. And then Warner sold Nickelodeon along with its sister networks, MTV and VH1, to Viacom in 1986. Did you watch Nickelodeon as a kid? No. You did not? I didn't. You didn't watch any of it? I don't think so. So I, when I was a kid, I don't know, it was like maybe junior high, maybe elementary, we got Nickelodeon. And you can't do that on television was like the yeah. shit. 
I remember that show. Now, how do you remember that if you didn't have it? I don't think I had cable. So you, so you don't remember it? I remember hearing about it and stuff. From other friends you were jealous yeah. of. Or friends' Probably. houses, maybe? Yeah. So we had it, and it was the shit. Yeah. Like the locker jokes and the slime coming down when mm-hmm. he said, I don't know. And mm-hmm. if he said water, they dump water on you. And Ross and Kevin Chu. Kubicheski and Brody and Alanis Morissette. Oh yeah, that's was right. Was going down on Dave Coulier. No. In a theater. No. That was about that song's about him. You know that, right? I, I've heard that. Dave Coulier was on a show that was after Nick. Uh, you can't do that on television. On also on Nickelodeon called Out of Control. Oh yeah. That was my brother and I's favorite show. Out of control. Jeez. Dave Coulier was the host. It was like a talk show for kids. It was awesome. Oh, God. Hearn Burford, and there was like a, a guy named, that would just say, that's stupid to everything. We mm-hmm. love that guy. Anyway, so Dave Coulier, little did we know, was banging the You Can't Do That on Television kids. And they were both at Nickelodeon, so that Yeah, because Alanis Morissette was a kid. Like, she yeah. was just a kid. Alanis. Yeah. Hey, Alanis. Yeah. Right. Just another introduction to the opposites. You know what that is? No. Opposite sketches? No. You really don't know you can't do that on television? No. I, Ruddy I didn't have cable, honey. Christine? We had the five channels. Okay. Well, they did all these things. They had a, a burger shop that where the guy like would pick his nose and hang it on a fly paper. Ew. And then that was the same guy who played the arcade guy blip. And they'd be in an arcade mm-hmm. and they'd be at a... But it was a good show. It was great. Like, I miss... My grandma had cable, and, and we had one of those cable boxes that was like a... It, it was it had like a slide. Yeah. Like, that's you how you turn the channel. You flip the slide yeah. up and down, and that's <laughs> yeah. how you turn the channel on the cable box. How come everyone's grandparents introduced everyone I to I know. Like, I don't know. Here's the next technology, and this is the only technology we will ever understand. Yes. <laughs> grandparents introduced the cable. Yeah. My grandparents had cable first, too, and it was, they had an A-B switch. Because they had that expendable income or yeah, something. Yeah, I guess that's right. And they had nothing else to do but watch yeah. TV and wait for their grandkids that's to come That's right. Over. So they get the latest hot technology and television. And yeah, my grandparents had all these cable channels, and all they watched was this old fucking house. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Damn, my grandma's going to be 90 yes. in March. So everyone celebrate. On March 23rd, celebrate my grandmother's 90th birthday. Yes. Now, on Thursday, April 12th, 1979, mm-hmm. 1979's Mad Max mm-hmm. was dubbed for original U.S. release because producers assumed American audience would have American audiences would have trouble understanding Australian accents. Oh, it was dubbed. It was dubbed from an Australian accent. Yeah, from an Australian accent That's to funny. English, just because they nobody would because they were like yeah. Good night, mate. Yep. Put another shrimp on the bobby. Foster's Australian for beer. Yep. Kangaroo. I don't know any other Australian things, do you? I don't know a lot. Boomerang. Boomerang, mate. I stick that boomerang up my ass, mate. All right. Sorry. What's next? Uh, Saturday, Mm -hmm. April 14th, 1979. Yes. We got a new number one song on the motherfucking billboard charts. Let's hear it. Oh, yes. Little yeah. Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers, What a Fool Believes. This is a song written by Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins, the two sexiest men alive. 
This is a pretty good song. This is a good song. And and I will tell you that Michael McDonald, he still sings this song live. Oh yeah, you know you know. I know this. this. I've been to three Michael McDonald concerts. <laughs> so you I sound have, like a super fan. <laughs> I I did not pay for any of them. <laughs> I have seen Michael McDonald wandering around in his underpants backstage, <laughs> bumping into things because that's who Michael McDonald is. Michael McDonald. But I gotta say, I, this is a good song. I like it. I yeah. like Michael McDonald. Yeah, and it's a great song. I tell, did I ever tell you my mom used to think he's hot? <laughs> that was she was he was the guy for her. Like when Michael I was real McDonald's? little. Oh, she was in love with Michael McDonald. You're kidding. No, ask her. She used to her. think he was so hot. Her. Let's call her right now. Call her right now. Get her on the podcast. Didn't you think Michael McDonald was hot once? Yes, it's two in the morning, but we should make her apologize for that too. Since she apologized for uh she apologized for thinking Michael McDonald's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Michael McDonald is hot. I mean, when I first met him, I was like, Oh, is this uh a friend of mine's dad who's here to fix the radiator? Yeah. <laughs> but no, it's Michael McDonald. But he kicked ass. You didn't understand a word he said, but he kicked ass. When he talked, you didn't understand? No, when he sang. Oh, you yeah. Know, like, yeah. Anyway, the best-known version of this song was recorded by the Doobie Brothers with Michael McDonald singing lead vocals for their 1978 album, Minute by Minute, debuting at number 73. Yes. On January 20th, 1979, the single reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on April 14th, 1979 for one week. The song received Grammy Awards in 1980 for both Song of the Year and Record of the Year. The song was one of the few non-disco number one hits on the Billboard Hot 100 during the first eight months of 79. Oh. Their lyrics tell a story of a man who was reunited with an old love interest and attempts to rekindle a romantic relationship with her before discovering that one never really existed. Even though nobody can ever understand the lyrics to the song. Nobody knows what they're saying. No. It was claimed that Michael Jackson contributed at least one backing track to the original Doobie Brothers recording. I don't hear him, do you? No, I don't he hear him. He was not credited for having done so. This was later denied by the band. I don't hear Michael Jackson Mm-mm, at all. I don't hear him at all either. And we're also now officially... Here, let me go ahead and just... Michael, Michael, shut up. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, Michael Jackson, now we're now in a world where you can't like any Michael Jackson songs because it just came oh boy. out at Sundance that he raped a bunch of children. So, oh boy. So now we are not only in a world where we can't like Bill Cosby, you know, Fat Albert's gone. So Picture they found out that he really did? Well, there's a movie at Sundance about Michael Jackson and all these people and oh. claiming that he raped them. Oh no. I haven't seen it so I don't know. But apparently it's pretty damn damning. Oh no. So now no more Man on the Mirror. No more beat it. We're not allowed to like anything anymore. Oh, no. But here's my argument. Now, Bach, like everybody likes Bach, right? Yeah. Uh, Sebastian Bach and then like Beethoven. Mm-hmm. They probably raped people. Well. So there's like a statute of limitations. Like eventually you can he, like stuff again, right? He raped children, honey. Maybe Beethoven did. But. If, let me just tell we you, don't ask, know. Let me ask you this: If I can prove that Beethoven raped children, will everyone stop liking Beethoven? Probably. Or, or is it so ancient that it doesn't even? 
It, Register. I don't know. I think people would change their mind about it if they found that out. They would, and they'd be like, they'd ban Beethoven songs, like no more. Maybe. I don't know. I don't think that's Beethoven. That's <laughs> Bach, maybe. I don't know. It's somebody. I just, I like, uh, what's the rule on something? Like, can a horrible person who does horrible things still create art? They can create it, but to consume it is... Is then wrong because then of who wrong. created it? Yeah. But what if you hear a music and you're like, oh, man, that sounds good. I like it. Are you a bad person for liking it? No, because you're they a bad person someone? if you then go out and buy it. Knowing yeah, what they did. Right. But if you didn't know that they did a horrible thing, then, that's okay? Th- right. Well, it's not. if you don't know, then how, how so say, can it be? Say we find out in 10 years from now that Shaka Khan... Uh, uh, Stuck her toes up a bunch of people's butts and made them uncomfortable, then murdered them. Mm-hmm. Do I have to throw out my Shaka Khan albums? Yes. I have to throw them out. I can no longer like that because of what she did. I guess. I don't know. What if she doesn't benefit from it? Then is it okay to like it? Because then you're taking their art and you're stealing it know. from them. It's so a then hard, it's like it's a, a Robin Hood situation. It's a hard yeah, thing hard to, to figure I, out. Who do we ask? Who do we ask? Who do you question? even ask? It just, yeah, I don't know either. A philosopher would have to tell us the answer to that. Yeah, I don't know. We need some uh, listeners. How about our listeners? Yeah. Tweet us at History for Jerks. Saturday, April 14th, 1979. Oh, sorry. That was the Doobie Brothers. That's when yes. they became the number one song on the Billboard charts. And then on Wednesday, April 18th, 1979, Real People premiered. I remember that show. I loved that show. Real the, People. I remember loving Real People it. and That's Incredible were Yeah, were on those back were back. the two, like, yep. Real People and That's Incredible were, like, yep. everything was orange. Yes. And there was a guy with a skinny microphone. Yep. And I don't know if I knew the difference, but Real People was a reality television series that aired Wednesdays from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m., mm-hmm. and it ran from 79 to 84 its initial episodes aired live in the Eastern and Central time zones. Real people featured real people as opposed to celebrities with unique occupations or hobbies. Yep. I don't you remember, remember much you, about it. Yeah, I don't either, but I remember loving I it. I did, I remember too. I couldn't wait for that show to be Yeah. On. And my whole family agreed. We all watched real people. Yeah. Out of the four things that were on, that was what we watched. That was the channel that <laughs> yeah. night. Yeah. Real people, and that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those were the things that were like, oh, my God, can you believe that? Kathy Lee Crosby, wasn't she the one on That's Incredible? I don't know. I can't tell you anybody. I should have looked it up, but uh, that's all I have on it. But that's when it premiered, April 18th, 1979. And then Friday, April 20th, Faux 20, mm-hmm. everybody smoking weed, 1979, President Carter, yep, President Jimmy Carter, had gone on a solo fishing expedition in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. I think I know what you're going to say. According to Carter, a rabbit being chased by hounds, jumped in the water and swam toward his boat. When it got almost there, he splashed some water with a paddle. When Carter returned to his office, his staff did not believe his story, insisting that rabbits could not swim or that they would never approach a person threateningly. However, the incident was captured on footage taken by a White House photographer. Oh. Jody Powell... Carter's press secretary mentioned the event to Associated Press correspondent Brooks Jackson on August 28th, who filed the report within the wire service the following day. The story, entitled Bunny Goes Bugs, 
Rabbit Attacks president, ran on August 30th, 1979, and was carried on the front page of the Washington Post. That's so dumb. Though the White House's refusal to release the photograph resulted in the newspaper using a cartoon parody of the Jaws poster labored, labeled Paws as its illustration. That's pretty dumb. The White House declined to release the photo to the media until it turned up during the Reagan administration, and the story saw a revival. In his 1986 book, The Other Side of the Story, Powell recounted the story as follows. follows. Who Powell? Judy, Powell? Jody Powell, oh. Carter's press secretary, who I mentioned earlier. Oh. If you have been paying attention. I couldn't remember. No. It's hard. It's a long time ago. Upon closer <laughs> inspection, the animal turned out to be a rabbit. Not one of your cutesy Easter bunny type rabbits, but one of those big splay-footed things that we called swamp rabbits when I was growing up. I've never heard of a swamp rabbit. The animal was clearly in distress, or perhaps berserk. The president confessed to having had limited experience with enraged rabbits. Who okay. has who has extensive experience yeah, with, enraged with enraged rabbits? rabbits? He was unable to reach a definite conclusion about its state of mind. What was obvious, however, was that this large wet animal making strange hissing noises and gnashing its teeth was intent upon climbing into the presidential boat. What? The thing tried to get in the boat? Yeah. Oh. He was panicking. The incident with the rabbit became fodder for political and ideological opponents who wanted to frame Carter's presidency as hapless and enfeebled. Yeah. Although the avid, although the event's proximity to the U.S. release of the comedy feature film Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which features scenes of a killer rabbit slaying humans, yep. led to some people describing Carter as having fended off a killer rabbit instead. Okay. The incident was parodied in the 1980 song by folk singer Tom Paxson entitled, I Don't Want a Bunny Wunny. All right. I don't think we need to hear that. You don't want to listen to it? No. Our marriage is over then. I do not want to listen to that song. Do you have anything to say about that whole thing? I thought it was going to be, Jimmy Carter had a UFO experience. I thought that. Yeah, we talked about that, right? That was 1970. We did talk about it? Yeah, remember we covered that. Oh, we did? He's like the first president to ever report a UFO. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I thought it was going to be that. I don't know why. When when he, when he you said he was going on a fishing expedition. Oh, Because that's when that. people always see UFOs is when yeah, they're out is, fishing in the woods. fishing in the woods. That's yep. probably on purpose. Yeah. Saturday, April 21st, 1979. We have a new number one song on the Billboard charts by Amy Stewart. What is this? This is a 1966 hit song written by Eddie Floyd and Steve Cropper and originally performed by Floyd. Oh, is this Knock on Wood? Yes, it's Knock yeah. on Wood. I've never heard the beginning of it like that. I've never heard this at all, I don't think. Floyd's recording peaked at number 28 on the Billboard Hot 100 and spent one week at number one on the Soul Singles chart. The song was written in the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. It's now the National Civil Rights Museum. Steve Cropper stated in interviews that there was a lightning storm the night that he and Eddie, he and Eddie wrote the song. Hence the lyrics, it's like thunder and lightning. The way you love me is frightening. Yes. You never heard the song? So far, I... I, I like it though. I think I, I thought I had seen this at karaoke or something before. 
You probably should. I like it. Mm-hmm. It's a good song. This song has been frequently covered. First by Otis Redding and Carla Thomas in 67. The American Breed covered it on their 67 debut album, The American Breed. Mm-hmm. There have also been charting singles by David Bowie, mm-hmm. Amy Stewart, this one, Razzie Bailey, Eric Clapton in 85, Michael Bolton in 92, and Safri Duo featuring Clark Anderson in 2004. The German techno band Scooter made a half cover of the song entitled The Avengers Back on their 2004 album Mind the Gap. Mm -hmm. The song is also performed by actress Justine Bateman in the 1988 movie Satisfaction. Oh, boy. James Cotton covered it at the Texas International Pop Festival in 1969. Can you see Justine Bateman singing this song? Justine Bateman was friggin' hot. No, she was not. I was in love with Mallory. She was not. She was not hot? No. Wait. Are you honest? I'm honest. You don't think Justin Bateman was hot no. in Family Ties? I did not think she was hot. In I love. I thought Justin Bate, Jason Bateman was hot. He was on. Um, he was on Hogan Family. Yeah, Valerie. I thought he was hot. Not only is that wrong, but Mallory was the shit. And she. I still think he's kind of hot. Well, I still think she's kind of hot. <laughs> well, let's so break up. Let's swing with the Batemans. <laughs> so, I don't think you can swing with a brother and sister. Yeah, you can. That's Bonnie Hostetter. It's fine. That, that, that's <laughs> Bonnie Hostetter, for folks who don't know, is my grandparents' neighbor who lived with her brother. We found out they thought that we thought they were married. We found out they were brother and sister, and Amy is insisting that they were they were having sex with each other as well. But the Batemans, let's, Amy and I, that's the thing. Like, I take Justin, you take Justin, Jason. Uh, Jason I'll call him fine. Justin all the time, though. Now, how come Jason has had, like, this huge, successful career? He's in everything. And Justine's know. nowhere. I don't know. She was so hot. I was so in love with her as Mallory. I wanted to be Skippy. I wanted to be Skippy? Nick. Skippy was the nerd one. I know. Whoever banged her, I wanted to be. Oh, Jesus. I think Skippy did You think it. Skippy banged her? And Skippy banged her. I don't think Skippy banged Mallory. So, yeah, Mallory was the shit. But when that movie came out that she was in, mm-hmm. where she had an album and stuff, it was... Yeah, uh, I remember that. Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Like, I think she showed a little bit of boobs or something. I have no idea. Whatever it was... American boys could not wait to see her boobs. So all the American boys, all American boys wanted to see satisfaction. Oh, movie! Oh, we couldn't wait to see that. Whether it was on video or oh my god, Justine Bateman's in the movie. Oh, thank God! And then she just disappeared. I don't know what happened. I don't know. And now the only place I see her now, her only claim to fame, while Jason Bateman's in everything, her only claim to fame is at the end of an article on online that you read. Her picture will be like, oh, it's amazing what these celebrities look like now. Yeah. Yeah, she'll be on there sometimes. You'll shit your pants when you see what Justine Bateman looks like now. Maybe she went off and had kids and had a family. She probably did. was just like, fuck this. Yeah. I don't need this. Yeah. Saturday, April 28th, 1979. We got another number one single on the number number one spot on the Billboard charts. This is a song Amy knows well. I love this song. This is a song by American New Wave band Blondie, written by singer Debbie Harry and guitarist Chris Stein. Featured on the band's third studio album, Parallel Lines. 
Yes, this is a great song. It was released as the album's third single in January 1979 and reached number one on the charts in several countries, including the United States and the United Kingdom. Sweet. In December 2004, Rolling Stone ranked this the number 255 song on its list of 500 greatest songs of all time. Yeah. I can see that. Right in the middle. This is Blondie, Heart of Glass. Yes. And Amy I love it. has sung this song at karaoke bars. Yes. Karaoke bars. Maybe 25 times? Probably more than that. How many times did you sing this and get your boob out? Well, that's never happened, honey. Oh. I don't know what karaoke bars you're going to. Would you be willing? No. For a price? Nope. Well, aim like the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase says, everybody has a price. <laughs> okay. The Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. That's, that was that? Okay. Yeah, that's what he would say. You've been waiting to spring that one out. I've been watching a lot of WWE Network from the 90s, and Ted DiBiase does, he laughs like that diabolically anytime he can. So It's funny. Him. Yeah, it's great. And then on, oh, that same day, Saturday, April 28, 1979, mm-hmm. Anna Williams went out dancing with friends. Yeah. Do you know who Anna Williams no. is? Well, she went out dancing with friends. Yes. Uh, she was a 63-year-old woman who stayed out late with her friends that night. Yep. She stayed out later than usual. A 63-year-old woman went out dancing. Okay. That's good. Yeah, That's very cool. good. Get out there, lady. Good thing she did because there was someone waiting for her oh. at her home. This person waiting for her was the goddamn BTK killer. Oh, I've heard this story. That's the alias of Dennis Rader, who yes. gave himself the name BTK. It stood for... Bind, torture, kill. Okay, good. He was a serial killer who was active, active from 74 to 91. Yep. We haven't ca- covered him, right? No, we never did. He murdered 10 people. He wasn't caught until 2005. Yep. But this was 1979, right in the heart of his rampage, and Rader stalked Anna Williams for months. Ugh. Finally, while she was out... He broke in. He yep. cut the phone lines. He picked out a few souvenirs to take home for his collection, and he waited for her. Yes. And he waited. And he waited. When Williams got home, mm-hmm. she found that her house had been broken into and that her phones were dead. She looked through the house to find there was no one there. Raider had gotten tired of waiting and just left. Oh, wow. Yeah. Two, two months later, she got a letter from BTK that included a poem called, Oh, Anna, why didn't you appear? Yes. Because chicks dig poems, especially ones about how you plan to blue, brutally murder them. Well, and he. That's he, directly from some site that was. He was like a dad, and he had kids and a family, and he was living this double life. And Hey, I'm a dad. I have kids and a family. He um stopped killing and. Then he started to, you know, like for years and years, he wasn't ki- didn't do any killing. But then he's then um, I can't remember if something came out, some new evidence came out or something, and they were talking about it. It was an anniversary of the of the BTK killings, and so he it got him all big boner again, and so he big boner. Yeah. He called the he wrote he went wrote letters to the police, 
but he wrote them on a computer at a public library, and they tra they were able to trace the the print and the paper and everything to back to the library and really? to which computer it was, and they figured out. And that's how they figured out it was him. Wow. They got, like, camera footage of him at the computer or something? It was something about the floppy disk. Floppy disk. It was one of those floppy disks. Can you remember floppy disks? Yeah. Kids these big, days wouldn't know what those were. Yeah, it was one of those big, soft so they, ones. So, okay. So it was something about, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but. This um, is great podcasting. They, but they, I, well, I didn't, I kidding. wasn't prepared to tell the story. Of but why haven't we covered him? I don't know. I don't know why. I, maybe it was because it was so tricky because. He wasn't caught till 2005, but he stopped killing in the 90s. But he started killing in the end of the 70s. Oh, so what do we do? How do we cover this so guy? So there was never a clear time to cover him. We might have to do a... Sp that might call for a special a episode. Or a spinoff podcast. A spinoff pod spin podcast? The Jeffersons? Something... So I don't know. Some kind of spinoff podcast. Hmm. We'll have to figure that one out. You know what a good trivia question would be is what... Like, could you name the spinny-offiest sitcom? Like, a sitcom that was a spinoff of a spinoff of a spinoff oh. of a spinoff. Like, what's the longest-running like spinoff? Spinoff chain? Yeah, spinoff chain. I don't know. How would you even find out that? How would you do that research? I guess it's probably some that. dick on the computer internets that already answered that question. Why is he a dick? <laughs> well, I think he's a helpful friend. Because because that's kind of, frankly, a dumb question. <laughs> what? Frankly, yes. Well, yeah. Frankly, you're a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> you're a nice, beautiful bitch, though. Saturday, May fifth, nineteen seventy nine. We have another number one, new number one song on the Billboard chart. chart. This is another number one song, and it's from Peaches and Herb. Yes, I love this song too. Peaches and Herb is the greatest band name ever. Yes, it is. I love that it's Peaches and Herb. <laughs> I know. <laughs> This is a hit song for this R&B vocal duo. It's called Reunited. Yes, it is. As the second single released from a 1978 album, Too Hot, with a number two. The song was a huge crossover smash, topping both the pop and soul charts. Yes. It spent it four weeks at number one on both the R&B singles charts and the Billboard Hot 100 singles charts in 1979. Sold over two million copies. You can hear this at any karaoke bar yes, in Toledo, you can. Ohio. And any, anywhere in middle America, probably. I gotta say, I remember Kiefer singing this song in Toledo, Ohio in the late 90s, early 90s, mid 90s, maybe. Kiefer? Kiefer was this cool black guy that could sing any note. He could go high, he could low, he'd yeah. do a lot of Michael Jackson. And he would sing this with some now, lovely lady. No, I guess lady. Michael Jackson must be off limits at karaoke Maybe. now. Maybe. But he would sing this with whatever lady he was going to take home that night. Kiefer worked with us at so the airport. So he took a different lady home every night? Oh, yeah. Dude was hot. Like, I would have banged him. Oh, wow. Like, he was, like, just a good-looking dude that could sing, and he would sing every song. And then he would sing this with whatever lady he was going to take home that night. You already said that. And then he would take that lady home and just All go right. We're not. We're done. Countdown. We're done. <laughs> Kiefer was the best. Anyway, he's a cool dude. I wonder what he's doing. I wish I knew his last name. I would look him up. Anyway, um, this song is written by Dino Fakaris and Freddie Perrin, and it was a sequel song to the duo's 1968 hit, Will Be United, which was itself a cover of The Intruder's original 1966 hit. 
which was the cover of a, another song. Okay. And it was a cover of another song. All right. Louise Mandrell covered this. Did she? With R.C. Bannon. That reached number 13 on the Hot Country Nobody Singles Nobody covered it like Peaches chart. and Herb, though. No, Peaches and Herb. It was regularly covered by Faith No More. Whoa, I can't the, imagine that. Is the intro song to the live shows of their 2009-2010 tour, which was when they were all washed up, I think. Yeah. It was also sung by David Hasselhoff at, huh. the, at the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Oh, my God, you're kidding. I'm what, not. Can you imagine? That's the cheesiest thing I can ever imagine, that he sang Reunited and it feels so good to the Germans. When the Berlin Wall was I know he's down. huge in Germany. So what do like you think? He's would, supposed to be a big oh, he over is. there. He's huge. But what do you think will happen when we tear down the wall that Trump builds? We'll sing Reunited by Peaches and Her. Yeah, probably. we'll have David Hasselhoff come back to life. And then we'll burn an effigy of And then one more thing, Raven Simone and Bobby J. Thompson sang Reunited in two thousand five in the season three episode of That's So Raven. And we didn't need to know next that door. <laughs> yeah. We did not need to know yeah, that. Yeah, we did need to know that. And then Friday, May 25th, 1979. Mm-hmm. Do you know who Eton Pats is? Yes. Who? I've heard that. Eton name. Pats? Eton? E-T-A-N? Eton? Eton. Eton, I think. Eton Pats was the was first. It, he was, a, he, was he a child? He was the first missing child. Yes. To have his picture right. on a milk carton. Yep. In 1979. And the murderer wasn't caught. Get this until 2012. Yeah. Wow. 2012. That's awful. We lived in North Carolina in 2012. That's how late that is. Yeah. 1979, 2012. That's crazy. He was declared, uh, he was born in 1972. He was declared legally dead in 2001. He was an American boy who was six years old on May 25th, 1979, when he disappeared on his way to his school bus stop Mm -hmm. in the Soho neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. His disappearance helped launch the Missing Children Movement, which included new legislation and new methods for tracking down missing children. Several years after he disappeared, Pats was one of the first children to be profiled on the photo on a milk carton campaigns of the early 1980s. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan designated May 25th the anniversary of Eaton's disappearance as National Missing Children's Day in the United States. Yep. That's scary. Who? who, When would you send a six-year-old to the bus stop by themselves? It was like it was like a a block away from where they lived, I guess. And it was the 70s. Everybody, I walked by myself. D- across the parking lot to get to my school when I was in kindergarten. Across the parking lot is one thing. But it was a big parking lot. And I was six. six. And across the street. Both by myself when I was in kindergarten. Six. Yeah. In the 70s. I know. But in Manhattan, if you live in Manhattan, imagine if we live in Manhattan and our I child know. was well, six. Well, of course we wouldn't. But... I'm just trying to put it in a little perspective. Yeah, I know. It is, it, and it's almost too far the other way now. Like, yeah. now it's like you can't be out of your kid's sight for one second. Like, I'll, I'll be dropping my kids off at the school. Yes. And they'll be like, I'm sorry, you can't drop your kids off at the school. That's not safe. I'm like, we're at the school. Yeah. I can see the school. I'm watching them walk in. That's not safe. You have to walk in with them and put them in their seat and tape them down. Now you're being a little bit extreme. I am being extreme. Decades later, it was determined that Eton had been abducted and murdered the same day that he went missing. 
The case was reopened in 2010 by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. In 2012, the FBI excavated the basement of the alleged crime scene near the Pat's residence but discovered no new evidence. Pedro Hernandez, Mm -hmm. a suspect who confessed, was charged and indicted later that year on charges of second-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. God, why second-degree murder? In 2014, the case went through a series of hearings to determine whether or not Hernandez's statements before he received his Miranda rights were legally admissible at trial. Mm. His trial began in January 2015. This is 1979. Yeah. And it ended in a mistrial that May when one of the 12 jurors held out. The retrial began on October 19, 2016, and concluded on February 14, 2017, after nine days of deliberations, when the jury found Hernandez guilty of murder and kidnapping. Good. Hernandez was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison on April 18, 2017. Hernandez will not be eligible for parole for 25 years. Well, he shouldn't be eligible for parole ever. But 2017, from 1979? He was, like, free. A, he was free all that time. It's got to be an old man. Yeah, but he was free all that time. Yeah, he was. He shouldn't have to. He shouldn't be able to, eligible for parole ever. On May twenty fifth, nineteen seventy nine, a McDonnell Douglas DC ten ten. Do you know what that means? It's a play, airplane. I guess it was a flight taking off from a runway. Yeah. When it crashed into the ground. Oh wow! All two hundred and fifty eight passengers and thirteen crew on board were killed, along with two people on the ground. With 273 fatalities, this is the deadliest aviation accident to have occurred in the United States. Is it? The NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, found that as the aircraft was beginning its takeoff rotation, engine number one, Mm. the left engine, separated from the left wing, flipping over the top of the wing and landing on the runway. Oh, wow. As the engine separated from the aircraft, it severed hydraulic fluid lines that locked the wing's leading edge slats in place and damaged a three-foot section of the left wing's leading edge. Aerodynamic forces acting on the wing resulted in an uncommanded retraction of the outboard slats. I'm totally lost. (laughs) As the aircraft began to climb, the damaged left wing with no engine produced far less lift than the right wing with a slat still deployed and its engine providing full takeoff thrust. The disrupted and unbalanced aerodynamics of the aircraft caused it to roll abruptly to the left until it was partially inverted, reaching a bank angle of 112 degrees before crashing in an open field by a trailer park near the end of the runway. The engine separated. The engine separation was attributed to damage to the Pylon structure holding the engine of the wing caused by improper maintenance procedures used at American Airlines. Okay. That's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of... A lot of words. That that are there. Yeah. Anyway, plane crashed. Yeah. And then Friday, June 1st, 1979, the NBA World Championship Series was the championship series played at the conclusion of the NBA's 1978-1979 season, the Western Conference champion Seattle Supersonics played the Eastern Conference champion Washington Bullets, with the Bullets holding home court advantage due to a better regular season record. The Supersonics defeated the Bullets four games to one. The series was a rematch of the 1978 NBA Finals, which the Washington Bullets had won four to three. Boring. Amy doesn't like sports. Nope. But that same day... 
In early spring, several states passed state-mandated gasoline rationing. Yes. Including California, New York, Pennsylvania, Texas, and New Jersey. In these populous states, consumers could only purchase gas every other day based on whether the last digit of the license plate numbers was even or odd. Oh, my goodness. And Remember seeing those pictures of the lines of the cars yeah, crazy. going to the gas pumps. And th- they would run out of gas waiting to get yeah, gas. This day and age, nobody would wait. They'd be like, fuck this. Oh, it'd be anarchy. People they'd are so riots. entitled now. Yeah, they'd be slicing each other. Rationing. And try, try rationing anything you can't to ration. Americans these you days. Can't. Americans want everything and need everything right now. And they now. need it right now. Give and me another ketchup packet if, now. If you're going to ration, then I want fuck more you. I'm taking my, what's mine kind of thing. F you. I get what I want. It's also the same day that Rhodesia became mm-hmm. Zimbabwe. Rhodesia. Oh, all righty. Bet you didn't know that. Didn't know it. Didn't know it. And then on Saturday, June twenty second, June second, nineteen seventy nine. Yes. Jim Jacobs third birthday. Okay. June second, nineteen seventy nine. We got a new number one song on the motherfucking bitch ass billboard chart. And you'll like this probably. Another new number one song. The billboard chart. I'm trying to get it to play. Let's hear it. Oops. Yes. This is a song by American singer Donna Summer. Yes. From her seventh studio album, Bad Girls. A little hot stuff. Who's produced it? Who produced it then? I don't know who produced it. Honey. English producer Pete Bilot, an Italian producer Giorgio Moroder, and released his lead single for Bad Girls on April 13, 1979, mm-hmm. through Casablanca Records. Up to that point, Summer had mainly been associated with disco songs, but this song was also showed a significant rock direction. Yeah, I can see that. Including the guitar solo by ex-Doobie brother and Steely Dan guitarist Jeff Skunk. Say it with me. Baxter. (laughs) (laughs) Say it with me. It is one of her most popular songs based on the performance of the Billboard Hot 100. Yes, it's this a good is one. Donna St- Summer Hot Stuff. This is good. And this is also a karaoke song of yours. Yes. It is. There's a lot of 70s, Amy 79 hits that I like. 79 songs. 1979 songs. And karaoke bars. And I don't know why that is, but it seems like they're all in the 79. Well, maybe it's because. Was it Gloria Gaynor in 79 too? I, I think will so. survive. I think you're right. Okay, so that was it. That was. Uh, um, that was it. Sweet. June second, and then June ninth, nineteen seventy nine. Oh shit! Another song. Right back to. Boy, she didn't last long. She didn't. It was from the June second to June ninth, and then we got another number one song. This is by the stupid ass Bee Gees. <laughs> this song is a slow funk groove number. During recording, the Bee Gees played a prank on their manager Robert Stigwood. Sending him a version with a line backwards and forwards with my cock hanging out to see if he was paying attention to their work. For the release version, the line is backwards and forwards with my heart hanging out. I've never heard this one. Love you inside out. It's funny because ever since you mentioned Justin Timberlake, it's like. 
it puts the Bee Gees in a whole new light kind of thing. That's all you picture now? Yeah, sort of. That's pretty bad, though. <laughs> Here we go. This is terrible. Yeah. Why would anyone like falsetto? Say that the Bee Gees played a trick on their manager by like doing full sixty nine, taping in front their packs together. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the Bee Gees is just it's just a weird phenomenon. The Bee Gees, and then Friday June fifteenth, sure popular. They were sure popular, and then on Friday June fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine, the third highest grossing movie of seventy nine was released. Okay, it made eighty five million. $182,160. Okay. Rocky struggles in family life after his bout with Apollo Creed while the embarrassed champ insistently goads him to accept a challenge for a rematch. Rocky two. All right. Sylvester Stallone wrote the paperback novelization for this movie. The novel is mostly in first person from Rocky's point of view, written in the same choppy English in which Rocky speaks. Because that's how Sylvester Stallone speaks. It's probably how he speaks. Uh, scenes in which Rocky is not present, such as uh, Apollo Creed consulting associates or Polly alone with Adrian, are in standard third person and proper, proper English. I don't know why I'm reading that. In one version of the screenplay, there's a flashback scene that shows Rocky first meeting Mickey, and we learn Rocky's real first name. Oh. Robert. Okay. When Rocky's training for the fight, he's sparring with a smaller, quicker fighter. The sparring partner is played by real-life champion... Roberto Duran. Duran. Mm-hmm. Excited about that. Mm-hmm. It took Sylvester Stallone and editors Danford B. Green and Stanford C. Allen over eight months to edit the cinematic fight scene so as to meet Stallone's approval. Okay. Analysis by Philadelphia locals tracked the route Rocky took through the city during his training run when all the children ended up running with him. Yeah. And if he took this actual route from his South Philly house to the top of the art museum steps, he would have run approximately 30.2 miles in one day. Jeez. That's four miles more than a marathon. Yeah, that would have been a little long. And one more thing. Originally, Adrian was supposed to be at the big fight. However, because Talia Shire was working on another movie at the time, the storyline was changed to having her stay home and watch the fight on television. The scenes of her watching the boxing match on TV were shot and then edited into the movie several months after filming once the fight scenes had finished. Don't they do that all the time with stuff? Yeah. So that, why is that, that a big deal? For, that ruins it for me. No, it does? Yeah. That's how they do movies all the time. Well, uh, I don't know. It just Rocky II's ruined. I just thought she was watching Rocky fight. Oh, and she was, honey. like, cheering from home. Oh, It honey. was tragic for me as a kid that she couldn't be there. It was? Yeah, I was sad about that. I was like, why wasn't she there? Oh, it's what okay. What kind of a marriage is that? Is this what marriage is? That's what marriage is? Why the, get married? The woman stays home. Well, she just stays home. Doesn't even support her husband. Yeah. Well. What a bitch. 
Sorry. All right. No, that's not true. I don't know. It's just a movie. Anyway, but that's about all the time we have. Yes. All right. Um, that's been a while. This is, uh, we'll yes. see if we can get this in. But, you know, we got America! poltergeist. We got all this crazy stuff. And we're out of time. So we're going to have to. We're going to have to see you all. To sign off. For the next episode. Get and, out of here, um, Chuck Berry. I know you've loved being with us because we kind of liked being with you and you like us more than we like you. What? Wait, is that true? Our listeners? No, no. No. We love our listeners. What is wrong with you? All right. Here comes Chuck Berry. With you, listeners. Get out of here. Bye, Chuck Berry. Bye, Matt Truman's albums. is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.